Well, COVID has uh, been definitely an interesting time to be working in the hospital, to say the least. I mean, this is one of the reasons you go into you know healthcare is to be able to help people, especially during a, a pandemic such as this one. You know, I first encountered uh, coronavirus when I was working in Detroit as an ER doctor there, and definitely can say that um, you know as a country and as a healthcare system, we were tested um, to see you know how we would handle such a situation. There's definitely a lot of learning points and things that could have been done better. Um. That was Dr. Marshall Khan, a pediatric ER doctor currently working in Minneapolis. And he is making a really good point about the role that systems play in management of a viral pandemic. A viral pandemic impacts multiple aspects of both environmental and urban spaces, the results of which can have a profound impact on our daily interactions with one another. Welcome fellow urban enthusiasts, I'm your host Brett Khan, and with me as always is... Sava Sarkir. And we are both urban planning grad students at the University of Georgia. Today's episode is titled Pandemic Planning. With 68% of the world's populace estimated to be living in urban cities by the year 2050, it becomes that much more important to discuss how pandemics affect urban planning and how past pandemics have shaped the urban environments we live in now. But could urbanization itself be the root cause of pandemic? When we develop cities, we tear down wildlife habitats in order to erect human civilizations. Our practices have major implications on our global interaction. For one, we are brought into closer proximity with animals whose homes we have now destroyed. And oftentimes, our actions play a major role in the elimination of species. This reduction in biodiversity leaves us more vulnerable to the spread of pathogens. Viruses like swine flu and Ebola originated in animals and were passed to humans. This process of animal-to-human pathogen transferal is known as zoonosis. Because our bodies are not used to these pathogens, we become ill. The H1N1 swine flu outbreak, where pig livestock were the main carriers of the disease, underscores this process. So in a scenario involving swine flu, avoiding foods like bacon and other pork products should pretty much prevent you from catching the virus, right? Wrong. While pigs have been regarded as the primary culprits of human introduction to the H1N1 virus, they are not the only carriers of the disease. According to the CDC, birds were also just as culpable a carrier as our bacon products. Diversity in wildlife is actually a safeguard against disease. In the case of avian carriers, there are those who are able to carry the diseases like West Nile or H1N1, but there are also those who don't. These non-carriers decrease the rate by which diseases are spread, acting as breaks in the zoonosis cycle. When one group of birds that are carriers begins to increase in population while non-carriers drop, in part due to our disregard for biodiversity, we encourage the spread of diseases that afflict us today. In the 19th century, pandemic planning discussions centered around diseases such as cholera, typhus, tuberculosis, and typhoid. Ever heard of typhoid, Mary? You know, the asymptomatic cook that remained in denial that she was carrying the disease and ended up infecting 53 people and killing three? The infectious spread of diseases and deaths thereafter saw an eventual policy response, which resulted in the removal of many tenements, increased number of public parks, and more clean drinking water, which should have been considered before, no? It also influenced the iconic redevelopment of sewers and sanitation systems, like that of London's Metropolitan Board of Works, which in certain England cities saw up to a 50% reduction in pulmonary illnesses. Fast forward to the 21st century, and the planned discussions are centered around chronic illnesses like diabetes, asthma, or cardiovascular disease. 
The public policy response started focusing on creating healthier compact communities that help promote an active lifestyle. Increased use of cycling and public transit are common measures implemented. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, live, work, play. Essentially, we've been trying to get everyone to go outside and be more physically active in their surrounding community. The coronavirus pandemic of COVID-19 made the outside world a taboo space for human interaction. Unless you are considered an essential worker, you were told you should stay home and not venture into the now treacherous jungle right outside your doorstep, except to restock on essentials, of course. While COVID-19 is not as deadly as Ebola, which has a mortality rate of 60%, or other coronaviruses such as SARS and MERS with numbers around 30%, the true threat of this virus is its high rate of transmission. It would be fair to say the COVID-19 pandemic is comparable to the Spanish flu epidemic, which infected 500 million people and ended up killing more than 50 million. In this case, essentially the lower the kill rate, the higher the transmission. The higher the transmission, the greater the number of individuals infected. The greater the number infected, the higher the loss of life. I hope we didn't lose any of you there. A major challenge today will be to prevent a similar outcome like that of the Spanish flu of 1918. In our fight against SARS, the reality of cities as more than just a thing and as a living organism whose connectivity makes it near impossible to simply cut on off became more apparent. There are no general policies or best practices to deal with a global pandemic. So how do we design urban spaces to manage outbreaks? The COVID-19 pandemic is likely to change our way of life, particularly in cities. As urban areas around the world emerge from lockdown, how will city planners enforce social distancing while allowing the mobility that binds cities together? The argument between densification and indensification isn't something new. If you are an urban geek like us, you probably have heard it before. Since planners and designers have begun to craft the sustainable future of cities, Densification has played the protagonist in most of these future visions. The reasons range from compact transportation systems, reduced embodied energy, shorter length roads, reduced carbon footprints, and of course, the inevitable population boom that is to come in the near future. But will densification continue to play the role of the loving protagonist as we know it? Or will our perception change in the light of current events? Since the popular method to combat the pandemic was in fact de-densification. Most densification advocates hold their ground firmly though, and they have some strong reasons to do so. Jason Barr and Troy Tessier, both American economists, had a fresh perspective to this debate. According to the duo, the understanding of flux versus density needs to be understood clearly before we start dismissing the future of densification. What does this flux mean? It essentially is the flow of density in any city or region. New York City did not become the epicenter of COVID-19 because it's the densest city of the United States, but the driving factor was rather the active flux of the city. Cities like New York, Seattle, and Los Angeles have a high influx of population as they serve the nation with the role of the mega commercial hub. Economists argue that the number of people per hectare did not determine the unfortunate fate of these mega cities, but many people going in and out of these cities led to favorable conditions for the coronavirus to spread this widely. In May, Scott Weiner, a member of California State Senate, reinforced the argument for densification by comparing the two cities, New York and San Francisco. San Francisco response led to significantly fewer cases than New York City. While we should acknowledge that San Francisco has a much lower population than New York City, meaning New York City has 10 times the number of people as San Francisco, the former suffered 500 times a death. What made it possible for San Francisco to contain the spread of COVID was its quick response time that was also adopted in the relatively successful story of other dense cities like Taipei, Hong Kong, and Seoul. 
These cities, unfortunately, do continue to suffer, but the response time led to better control of the virus. Density is dangerous when it's unplanned. Mumbai, for example, even after adopting early measures and strict responses, continues to have rising cases, in part due to the fact that 40% of its population resides in informal settlements. As you see, crowding and densification are two very different terms. The former lacks housing demands, appropriate infrastructure, economic equity, hygiene, and access to healthcare. And these factors actively contribute to the spread of infectious diseases. High-density cities are not only the need of the future, but also positive models in times of pandemic. Urban areas provide access to quick infrastructure, wide health care, systematic hygiene, active lifestyle, and sanitation. Responsible cities with planned density come out as heroes in times of such unfortunate global events. Add to that, urban areas have the potential to be a healing responder for pandemics if managed with the right tools. Should we overlook slow response time, unequal distribution of resources, and simply blame density? Maybe not. We just need to focus on ensuring our cities develop with appropriate emergency protocols, plan densification, and equity. Working in a pediatric perspective, I see the importance of kids having that social interaction, being able to be in that structured setting which they thrive in and to develop, um, especially the younger kids. Um, so I, I see why people would want to restart schools, but you also have to realize the state and the area that you live in and the current climate of the coronavirus. So for example, if I lived in the Northeast, uh, where, you know, the new cases per day is much less than certain other areas of the, the country, then I, as a parent, would feel more comfortable sending my child back to school, uh, knowing that it is safer. But I think from a federal perspective, I think schools, public institutions, uh, you know, need aid and support, uh, making sure that they're able to clean the facilities properly, that there's enough uh, desks so that kids can be appropriately, you know, uh, socially distanced and that there's enough resources because I, you know, doing this virtual schooling, which is great, but you also have to realize not everybody can afford a laptop, have the same type of Wi-Fi, you know, all these resources that does put a strain on a family. That is another cost burden that people may not think of. So um, there's no right or wrong answer, but I think there needs to be a good balance between uh, knowing the climate of your state and the county and the resources available and to be able to safely go back to school. The COVID-19 health crisis drew attention to and exposed the flawed planning and management of cities. The impact of the virus exposed how well each city is able to continue to function during a time of crisis. The vulnerable state of public health and delivery systems are the most evident. There is also the ever-present trend of poor citizens being disproportionately vulnerable to the impact of the virus than that of the wealthy. Urban cities are hit hardest during times of crisis when they are not functional. So what does it mean to be a functional city? Well. The World Bank Group defines a functional city as a city where governance and service delivery systems work seamlessly, effectively, and simultaneously along a range of dimensions that deliver high-quality public services for both rich and poor neighborhoods. They also work hard to create economic opportunities for both citizens and businesses. They prioritize community participation and inclusion for all. And lastly, they make policies and decisions that create a stimulating and enjoyable life for its residents. As urban household demographics continue to shift towards a more single or couple occupancy dominated household, the demand for walkable urban spaces in downtowns will increase. Studies by Harvard's Joint Center for Housing concluded that citizens with a higher degree of education and higher income 
are increasingly more likely to move to regions with lively downtowns and urban neighborhoods than their counterparts who don't possess as much education or income. In turn, MIT Sloan School of Management reports that a region's economic growth is greatly dependent upon retaining and attracting educated workers to grow jobs across the board. Something to ponder is how can planning affect the oftentimes disadvantaged demographics of minorities and poorer citizens to provide them with a more equivalent access to skillful training, higher education, and greater income as their wealthier counterparts. An attempt at bridging this gap in equity has been made by the capital city of Finland, Helsinki. The capital has around 650,000 inhabitants and is established at the center of a 1.5 million populated metropolitan region. The city holds a quarter of the country's population and nearly 40% of the national GDP. The functionality in Helsinki comes from the emphasis on equal opportunity for all. Education is established as one of the cornerstones for the community. The Helsinki school system has been noted to have some of the best war schools, meaning that there is nearly no difference between schools in richer or poorer neighborhoods. The city management approaches each decision with functionality, safety, and openness. By doing so, the local government and citizens have developed a level of mutual trust, and that mutual cooperation has lent itself to greater crisis management during the COVID-19 pandemic response. The functional city approach by Helsinki utilizes three pillars. First off, a smart city, where digital tech and innovation are at the core of delivery services. Secondly, an inclusive city, where community input and participation are made central to policymaking, public service delivery, and design. And also, the prioritization of city budgets and investments. Lastly, a sustainable city, with strengthened energy security and increased public mobility in order to increase the quality of life. The city is set to be carbon neutral by 2035. The global pandemic response has had a huge toll on the quality of life and what makes a city, well, a city. No longer are travel, events, or outdoor activities as easily accessible. The pulse of urban life is paused, if only for a moment, in the hopes that one day we can return to our usual cadence and rhythms. With all that pain tonight, we wanted to take a closer look at South Korea because it is considered the gold standard. The rate of new cases there peaked late last month and are still under 10,000. Fewer than 160 people have died. South Korea has the most successful response to COVID-19 with a death curve flattening and active cases declining every day. The route to these positive graphs can be summed up into four adjectives. What are those? First, they were prompt. Early and almost immediate responses after the first case on January 20 made South Korea a leader in managing the pandemic. Lockdown, de-densification, social distancing measures, and access to testing and other healthcare facilities helped to contain the virus within relatively manageable figures. Second, speed. Not just early response, but South Korea was also quick, erecting facilities for testing, equipping the hospital with tools to fight the pandemic, and engaging technological infrastructure such as case tracking devices were the common steps that were implemented across the nation. Next is transparency. Real-time and frequent information was disseminated to the public. This helped build stronger communication and reciprocation culture between the authorities, citizens, and healthcare workers. Lastly, United. South Korea, unlike many prominent democracies, adopted a nationwide effort versus isolated state and city measures. This helped an efficient back-and-forth distribution of resources between grassroots and the wider nation. To sum up this country's success, it seems like simple, logical leadership not only helps manage panic among the citizens, but it is also effective in flattening the curve. South Korea wasn't the only nation that caught the headlights for its response to the pandemic. India too caught some spotlight but not quite on the same stage. 
we came here after we heard that a migrant worker has taken his own life that the economic hardship proved too much for him to take and we had india reported its first case on january 30th and shortly after prime minister modi announced a nationwide lockdown in the country this lockdown was rated highest in the stringency index by financial times for covid-19 though many citizens accepted and appreciated the lockdown 45 million indians did not this segment of the population makes up the migrant population of india by migrant we mean the low income labor population that travels either every day or on a monthly basis from the rural areas to the cities for the sole purpose of employment amid the lockdown migrants were left stranded on the streets without any means to travel back home or survive in the expensive cities strict and efficient are not necessarily synonyms the lockdown is a good emergency protocol that being said the successful execution through balanced disposal of resources is a crucial factor deciding the success of the same the country could have adopted temporary shelter programs distribution of relief funds or even safe transportation planning before implementing the lockdown and leaving millions to fend for themselves if you have faith in science it might be hard to understand why people would gather like this while a deadly virus ravages america If asymptomatic people go back to work, they could infect other people who could die. Okay, that's an interesting hypothesis. It's a fact. Yeah, sure it is. You don't believe that? That's science. That's, that's indisputable. That's interesting. That's interesting. If they're asymptomatic, how do they know that they have it or don't have well, they it? They don't. That's the point. Oh, that was America indeed. The United States has secured its place among failed countries when it comes to flattening the coronavirus curve. To put it simply, America dealt with the pandemic in the most American way. Well, the US initially reported 1000 cases on March 11th of 2020, and by mid-April, broke global figures reporting the highest number of deaths. What went so horribly wrong? First of all, why would I want to inflate these numbers, right? Working in a healthcare system, you're you take the oath to help people, to help them live healthy, to keep them healthy. There's no benefit for us or for anyone in this kind of setting in a healthcare setting to give false numbers uh you know people need to realize that this virus is here and it's impacting people uh in more than one ways and until i feel like people who aren't exposed or have had an adverse outcome to such a situation won't really understand the gravity of it the numbers that we report are based on uh the tests that we do the positive results that we see the negative outcomes and mortality as of now america is reported to have more than 8 million reported cases and over 220,000 deaths in a world where you have response models like south korea and others why does one of the most developed countries suffer this harshly decentralization was the main culprit unlike other successful stories containing the spread of covid-19 america did not approach the pandemic with a nationwide legislative response Do the defunding of government infrastructure meant to prevent and address pandemic level diseases. No publicly available safety kit was deployed. Neither were the hospitals fully equipped to deal with the situation, and nor were there any national schemes to subsidize healthcare. Decentralization was worsened through American individualism. This increased fatality during the pandemic. Protests were seen nationwide to open up the country as hundreds suffered unemployment and were worried about the economic crash. Nation to city collaboration. This essentially becomes a pivotal organization strategy in a pandemic crisis. A critical lesson learned from the COVID-19 crisis is how important swift dissemination of guidelines and legislative action from national government down to the local government 
can be a critical factor in containing and preventing the spread of disease. Heading into the future, cities will play increasingly more important roles during crises like COVID-19. We will potentially see a world of cities, right? In a world of cities, urban areas will focus on increased walkability, local emergency protocols, and municipal implementation of national legislation. During the initial enactment of quarantine protocols, most of us were confined to our homes. Open spaces became more appreciated. As per local and national regulations, most city parks and recreational urban wilderness were prohibited to access. Making outdoor spaces accessible during a pandemic is one trend that can be adopted worldwide. The National Parks Board of Singapore has been building therapeutic gardens in public parks to boost the mental and emotional health of their citizens. In Tokyo, citizens have been working together with designers to help greenify their urban neighborhoods. These initiatives show the human desire to remain in contact with nature and with proper planning can be implemented and utilized during a time of crisis to keep some resemblance of normalcy. Temporary urbanism is another tool that was adapted by many megacities across the globe. The popular built-in 10 days, Wuhan Hospital has initiated conversation regarding the extent of temporary urbanism. Many cities and regions swiftly converted their banquet and communal halls into testing centers. Adaptability of urban areas to be flexible became an essential asset during the pandemic. There are a number of preventative methods such as pedestrianizing cities by limiting vehicle space and prioritizing the citizens. 20-minute cities are prime examples of pedestrianization where all your daily needs can be reached within 20 minutes via micro-mobility. Invisible implementations, meaning we as citizens won't see or notice the new measures, such as sensor-based tech installed in sewer system to detect changes in public sanitation systems that could signal possible disease. Another pressing need of the future is to provide food as a plentiful resource within close proximity to all neighborhoods. As discussed before, the equity of urban spaces can become particularly disadvantageous during a pandemic, especially to the poor and minority groups who are without access to many services and income, unlike their wealthier counterparts. And if systems are not implemented to help level the playing field, this negative trend will continue in the future. Issues of equity, access to food, and control of infectious diseases is potentially solved in the donut economic model proposed by Amsterdam. They envision a future where the country, city, and region outline the balanced requirement of all citizens, which potentially will lead into a lifestyle that promotes health, equity, and biophilic values. Now that you have let us talk, we want to let you talk. Hop over to LettuceCD.com and engage in discussion with fellow urban enthusiasts. If you want to dig deeper into today's content, you can find our sources listed under today's episode. You can also tweet us using hashtag LetUsTalk. This episode's research, writing, directing, and editing was a collective effort of myself and Subba. Special shout out to our guest, Dr. Marshall Kant, for his insights, and also Ebony Hatchet for music production. Thanks to the Letters Group for the executive production of this podcast. Until next time.